2: Plunged almost thirteen percent. We have somebody who can give us a sense of what the technicals are underpinning some of the moves and what we can expect looking forward. Mitchell Krebs joins us now. He is president and chief executive officer of Core Mining. Uh, He also is the president of the Silver Institute, uh, which is based in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, He's pumping his fist. I expected you to come here like drenched in silver, you know, just dripping from everywhere. But but you're not. You're actually wearing uh, very little jewelry. Um, So there was a report that you put out today that was looking at the silver industry. And there was good news and there was bad news. So why don't you start with the good news?
0: Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. The good news for sure is that silver supply for the first time in 14 years actually declined last year. So that's a big deal. Not by a lot, but it's now declining and it's expected to continue to decline, which, you know, basic supply and demand fundamentals suggest that that's a positive tailwind for silver going forward. It's the fourth year in a row now where we've been in a structural deficit where demand has outstripped supply. So that's another positive. I'd say on the on the demand side, uh, solar panel demand hit an all-time high. It was up 34% last year. Uh, and that's a market that we think will continue to grow. You know, silver is very much of a technology, green, clean, uh, renewable energy type of metal. I think a lot of people think of silver as your silverware or your jewelry, which definitely that plays a part. But silver is used in every, everything with a light switch. Anything with an on and off switch has silver in it. So it's a very diverse uh, demand base. Well,
2: you know, this is is an interesting point because silver is often thought of as a sister metal to gold, a precious metal to kind of buy in times when you're looking for a haven. Um, And yet it's got a much more prevalent industrial use. Can you give us a sense of how much demand has come uh, from stuff that you actually use versus jewelry and how much that has increased over time?
0: Yeah, that's changed a lot. It used to be mostly a precious metals. But as electronics have, have grown globally, emerging middle classes in places like China and India have have grown, and consumption, GDP per capita has grown, industrial demand, electronics demand for silver has grown a lot. It now makes up the majority of demand for silver. Uh, 55%, la- right? 55%.
2: Can you give us a sense of where that was, say, two decades ago or a decade ago?
0: It would have been more like 25 to 30%. Uh, a decade ago, 15 years ago... 35 millimeter film was actually the biggest source of demand for silver. Um, Now, so that's gone from like 35 percent a year down to four percent as we've all gone to, you know, digital, digital. Right. And that's been all replaced with new uses in the electronic sector uh, predominantly and solar.
2: So so give us a sense. With the shifting landscape, there was some not so great news in the report that you put out today. Can you lay that out for us?
0: Yeah, overall demand was down. A lot of that has to do with just slower global economic growth, um, which has had an impact and had a negative impact on some of that electronics uh, driven demand. Jewelry demand was down a bit. India was probably one of the biggest stories with some of the currency crackdown that took place there last year. That had a negative effect on silver demand uh, coming out of out of India. But the beauty beauty of having such a diverse demand base is, you know, every year you're going to have some things that are down and and some markets that are that are up. But overall, last year it was down. Uh, a little bit. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, as, I was thinking as you said this. So global d- demand is down partly because the economy is slowing. And yet typically when things are slowing, they would people would go into precious metals to sort of offset the risk of a potential downturn. So it's sort of uh, trying to square those two sides is a, is a little bit uh, hard.
0: And that's the duality of of silver. You know, it is highly correlated to gold. So everything that moves gold in terms of safe haven investment risk off, you know, a lot of people are looking at precious metals these days more with these higher valuations in the broader equity markets, um, expectation of higher you know, of inflation, those types of, of things that drive gold definitely um, have a big impact on, on silver. But I always think of silver as having a good, it's, it's underpinned by all of this good, solid, diverse industrial demand. But what moves silver higher is the investment demand in, in times when typically that's uh, more favorable to things like gold.
2: So for something that is so stable and has these sort of competing uh, dynamics uh, ev- affecting its price, why is it down more than 12% in the past three weeks?
0: Well, silver is a very volatile metal. It makes gold look like, uh, uh, you know, b- looks boring. It makes gold look very boring. Silver goes up and down a lot. It's a small Silver's market. flashy. It's flashy. <laughs> So uh, the total demand every year for silver is like a billion ounces. So that's you put today's price on it. That's a fifteen billion dollar global annual market. That's chump change uh, compared to gold, is you know ten times that size. Copper, for example, oil, you know, much much bigger. So silver gets moved around a lot without you know a lot of capital. And so silver can go up and down. Last year, the price of silver uh, varied between $13 an ounce and I think $21 an ounce, which is huge volatility. So in the last uh, last four weeks, three weeks, a lot of what we've seen in silver is not that unusual. Um, Just, us you know, in, the, in the industry have pretty strong stomachs. And that's why it's so important to be, you know, as a mining company like us, it's all about cost. It's all about trying to, you know, have a diverse population. Uh, Diverse portfolio of operations that have low costs, conservative balance sheet to try and withstand uh, that inherent volatility, especially in silver.
2: So uh, with silver, you were talking about how supply is expected to be down. Is this because uh, companies and mining companies like your yours, is they're running out of places to go or is it uh, something else?
0: Over the last five years, exploration in our industry has absolutely plummeted. So peak prices were back in 2011 when silver hit nearly $50 an ounce. So to go from almost $50 an ounce down to, I think it hit $13 an ounce, people slashed their exploration budgets. So there's no new discoveries. So there's no new projects being built. And at the same time, a lot of the bigger projects or a lot of the bigger mines in the world are starting to get to the end of their lives. So those are expected to be mined out and, and go away. So you, we're kind of caught in this perfect storm of a lot of the older mines going away and and not a lot of new mines there to offset that.
2: Where do you think is going to be the biggest new vein discovered?
0: Oh, well, the new, the new uh, the next new deposit. I would probably put my money on Mexico just because Mexico is the world's largest silver producing country. There's a lot of metal there, so the odds of finding more. You usually find more metal where there already is metal found. So I'd I'd bet on Mexico, Peru's the second largest silver producing country. Those would be my bets, but you know, the places that haven't had as much exploration historically, Africa, um even in in Asia. Um there's probably more uh large deposits out there that just have not yet uh Um, gotten on anybody's radar screen.
2: Mitchell Krebs, thank you so much for joining us. Mitchell Krebs is President and Chief Executive Officer of Core Mining. He is also the President of the Silver Institute, uh, and uh, he is based in Chicago. we want to dig into uh, some shares that also are sinking into the red surprisingly because the war is over uh, Verizon did beat out at and t to buy straight path in other words buy 5G capabilities for uh 3.1 billion dollars to understand why everyone's just down on this news John Butler is here to make sense of it all John Butler is senior telecom services and equipment analyst for Bloomberg intelligence so uh John uh what do you what why why is everyone down including straight path which is- is down more than 20%
3: well it uh, that all comes down to price but this was interesting in terms of how it all unfolded I think we'll start at the 10,000 foot level Please, which that's, is that's wise this is a big win for Verizon because their bet on the near future in terms of returning to growth is all on 5g or mostly on 5g I should say. And AT&T's big bet, as you know, is on content. They bought DirecTV, and they're buying Time Warner. Both carriers have their eyes set on 5G services, which are, to put it in perspective, it's a next-generation wireless technology, the next evolution as we move from 2G to 3G. We're now at 4G LTE, which people probably recognize the next step is 5G. It promises to be 10 times faster than where we are today, but you need new spectrum bands to deploy that service. And so the FCC initially licensed a number of bands, including 28 and 39 gigahertz. And this little unknown company called Straight Path had nationwide uh, licenses for 39 gigahertz and 28 gigahertz in some big markets like New York. So suddenly, You know, the carriers woke up to the fact that we're going to need this spectrum potentially down the road, and the bidding war began for Straight Path. So while we're we're at the 20,000-foot level,
2: how did Straight Path get that spectrum?
3: Well, that's a long story, but basically the backstory behind it is they really, to their credit, understood – They skated to where the puck was going, if you will. You know, they understood that there would be a need for these high band spectrum frequencies because high frequencies don't travel very far. And so they never had much value, but they carry a lot more data than those lower bands. And so the carriers are now building networks a lot closer to you and me the wireless networks. And they don't need that long haul distance anymore, but they want that big fat pipe. And so Straight Path saw that they bought the licenses from the FCC. And where they came into violation is they they squatted on them, as they say, they sat on those licenses, and they didn't put them to use. And the FCC came back at them and they fined them a $100 million. The most of what most of those proceeds, by the way, can be paid from the sale of the spectrum. So they're they're forced to sell the spectrum now, um, which is so, which, which is, is how this why, whole bidding yeah. war began.
2: Well, so 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 is there going to be a six G? I mean, can you go higher frequency at this point? Uh, number one, and number two, is this sort of really bad news for AT and T because they are going to be behind in the speed wars.
3: Well, to the first question, um, with 5G, you can put it over any spectrum that's allocated for uh, use in wireless communications. So it's not like you have to use the, up these higher frequencies. But again, I go back to these multi-lane highways, if you will. They're big, fat pipes that can carry a lot more data than some of the lower frequencies that we use today for 4G. And so therein lies the value there. For AT and T, they have options. Actually, you know, Dish owns a lot of spectrum in the higher frequencies. They own something called the AWS, which is not nearly as high frequency as straight paths, but it's it's pretty good stuff. And they could look to Dish to license that potentially. And also, I think the FCC is going to uh, auction off some of the bands around the 28 and the 39 gigahertz in the future, although no dates are set. And so therein lies the uncertainty for AT&T But they see behind a curtain that you and I don't. I'm sure they've talked to the FCC, and they have a better grasp on their options than we
2: do. So uh, let's get to the price, because Straight Path is down uh, more than 20 percent, although, to be fair, uh, they are up dramatically on the year, dramatically by fourfold. So it's not, you know, this is nothing uh, compared to uh, what we've seen. Uh, Why, real quick, why didn't AT&T fight this bid?
3: Again, I think it goes back to what we were just talking about. I think they have options outside a straight path, and everything comes at a price. And I think if they looked down the road and saw another auction coming, maybe they wanted to keep dry powder for that. Because $3.1 is a lot of dough, you know? <laughs> so. it's, a, it's a lot of dough.
2: That is the technical term, and you heard it from John Butler. Uh, it is a lot of dough, $3.1 billion, that Verizon uh, is paying to buy Straight Path. Thank you so much. John Thanks, Butler Lisa. is Senior Telecom Services and Equipment Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And he joins us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios here in New York.
1: We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens.
2: Well, I am honored to bring in Craig Bouchard, who's chairman and chief executive officer of Brady Industries, which is based in Kentucky, not Chicago. I apologize for for misspeaking. Uh, Craig, thank you for, for coming. First, sure. uh, before we talk about your $1.3 billion investment, first, mm-hmm. can you just give us a sense of what Brady Industries is?
4: Well, Brady Industries was created for the purpose of bringing uh, jobs and a great company to the Appalachian to the, to the northeast part of Kentucky. Um, And we're building what will be um, the highest quality, lowest cost producer of, of aluminum in the United States.
2: So with this $1.3 billion investment in uh, an aluminum rolling mill to create uh, more eco-friendly and very thin aluminums uh, that can be used for, for example, for making cars.
4: Yes. So you would think of Brady as making the sheet, the exterior of automobiles, that aluminum, as well as the plate aluminum that would be in the wings of airplanes and the interiors of airplanes. And then with an acquisition that we'll be announcing here in a couple weeks, making ultra-high-strength parts, lightweight, high-strength high parts for the inside of cars and airplanes.
2: So why hasn't there been a plant of this size in the U.S. before?
4: Well, actually, I wouldn't say there hasn't been one before. There hasn't been one in at least 30 years. <laughs> so. Um, the, the competitors, which are all great companies, uh, Arconic, Novella, Solaris, Constellium Kaiser, they all have plants, but they're older plants that have had recent new additions to them, but they're, they're older facilities. Um, it's hard to say why there hasn't been one because um, it's clear that Greenfield is where advanced manufacturing is going. It's the, it's the only way to create the low-cost producer. Um, And I think in the case of the metals companies, you know, they haven't had lots of capital to spend because of, you know, some tough years over the last many years. And so this is an opportunity to kind of change that, change the whole mold, actually.
2: Well, uh, you know, some people would say that the reason why companies have uh, created overseas factories because the labor is cheaper uh, and you have to pay people more in the US is that what you're finding and how much does that contribute to the issue
4: well that was a real reason you know ten years ago people outsourced a lot to China um, Vietnam and other places but the wage rates in those countries have gone way up in that time period whereas wage rates in the United States have stagnated and even gone down even very skilled laborers like exist in the Ashland in the in the Northeast uh, Kentucky area so the wage equation has flip flopped. Um, we're going to the place that has an abundance of very skilled labor that's underutilized. It's one of the main reasons that we went to eastern, northeastern Kentucky.
2: And so these laborers, and just to be clear, uh, this mill uh, so, would create up to a thousand construction jobs, yeah. and that it would be that these would be more, as you were saying, high skilled jobs that would be better paid. Yeah. Where where were these workers employed? Previously,
4: They were uh, very skilled laborers and uh, workers in coal mines. Uh, big layoffs at companies uh, like AK Steel shut a plant down in that area recently. Those are highly skilled workers. Uh, Ashland Oil was a Fortune 500 company in that area many years ago and left. And, you know, it's been a it's been a troubled 20 years in the Appalachians. We're about to change it.
2: So uh, given the fact that it's been about 20 years, I know that a lot of people talk about brain drain from certain areas mm-hmm, yeah. that, you know, have been in trouble for a while. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there will be a sufficient stock of uh, of qualified employees? Yeah.
4: So, Lisa, here's a really good answer to this one. When we announced at the press conference with Governor Bevan, who's, by the way, one of the best governors in the United States, if not the best. Um, we announced uh, to a crowd of 300 people under a tent um, that um, Brady was beginning. We made the whole press release, and we we put our website live at that moment with the press release on it and a career section to click on on the website where any individual could send us their resume, tell us exactly what kind of a advanced manufacturing job they're looking for, um, and get in a queue. Um, It's been 10 days. We've had 2,200 applications already for those 550 jobs.
2: Well, it seems like there's plenty of demand. (laughs) Um, uh, The the $1.3 billion, uh, how are you financing that?
4: Yeah, so we're financed uh, in the normal Wall Street way um, with banks and investors and strategic investors. Um, roughly one third of that is equity, and roughly two thirds will be debt. That's priced pretty attractively given uh, given our background. So, we're happy with how that's gone. Uh, the equity was done is done in two pieces. One of them is already completed and way oversubscribed. The other one coming up shortly. So we're we're headed right down the path to breaking ground in the first quarter.
2: The eco friendly uh, aluminum that you were talking about is it typically yeah. more expensive than uh, the other? Other yeah, stuff out there.
4: Well, first, aluminum is the only commodity of all of the metals that is 100% recyclable, so it's eco-friendly from from the start. And of course, we're not a smelter; um, we're a rolling mill, so we're using less carbon uh, in general than, for instance, the smelting industry, which is you know heavily heavily uh, energy dependent. Um, Thirdly, we're completely brand new, the best machines in the world coming in from the very best suppliers. Uh, Our emissions are almost nothing for having 3 million square feet under roof on the Ohio River. So it's a really good, this isn't the smokestacks of of our prior generation. This is 550 people walking around with an iPad in their hands.
2: Thank you so much for joining us. Really interesting. Craig Bouchard, chairman and chief executive officer of Brady Industries, based in Kentucky, talking about the $1.3 billion investment that uh, his company is making in a new aluminum rolling mill that should uh, create up to 1,000 construction jobs. Really interesting about the job dynamic. And I do wonder how many other firms are going to follow your footsteps and really move into some of these areas where you have seen companies move out and people are unemployed. Well, there's some drama today over in Detroit and Keith Naughton is uh, going to explain it to us. Keith Naughton is the auto editor at large for Bloomberg News uh, located in Detroit. And Keith, we're talking about Ford. Ford shareholders are really angry and they had a uh, call, not an actual in-person meeting or a virtual meeting, I suppose I should say, uh, with the leadership of the company today. And it was it was pretty heated. Can you first just uh, lay out uh, what some of the issues were that these shareholders were so upset about?
5: Well, Lisa, the big issue is the stock. Uh, That's what they vented their spleen on today in this virtual annual meeting. It's down 36% since Mark Fields became CEO in the summer of 2014. He followed, as you might recall, the rock star CEO, Alan Mulally. And although he has generated, you know, really strong profits uh, the, the U.S. auto market is at its peak and starting to head down, so investors are fleeing uh, the auto stocks for the most part, U.S. auto stocks, um, though Ford has taken it on the chin more than others, and the shareholders are, are pretty fed up, so they, they hit. Um, Executive Chairman Bill Ford and Mark Fields with a lot of tough questions today in this annual meeting.
2: You know, I should just point out in your story, you noted that uh, Ford's shares have traded down by about 36 percent since Mark Fields took the helm as chief executive officer in uh, July of 2014. So what were some of the questions that shareholders wanted to know? Where were they focusing?
5: Yeah, well, they wanted to know essentially what management was going to do about what they called the pathetic performance of the of their stock. Uh, Bill Ford e- expressed frustration. Uh, he's the executive chairman. He's also the great-grandson of the founder, Henry Ford. And he said um, people asked him, does the Ford family care about the stock price? And he said the short answer is yes, a lot. Most of our net worth is tied up in the company. So, you know, they want to see the price go up as well. Um uh he was faced with these questions bill ford uh at last year's annual meeting too and he gave a you know a straight full-throated endorsement of mark fields um this time around he certainly endorsed mark fields strategy but he didn't mention him By name, as he was defending the strategy, which was a subtle difference that's important because Ford's board this week has been turning up the pressure on Fields. They scheduled extra time to meet with him to ask him about his strategy for turning things around. So the heat is on Mark Fields at the moment.
2: And let's talk about what he has done. Right, I mean he's diverted uh, quite a bit of money into the self-driving and electric uh, technologies, and saying that he's going to invest in the road ahead. Um, He also has. been, uh, I mean, overseeing the company at a time of of pretty good growth, as you say. But so, what, what, what could he potentially? How could he change his position?
5: Yeah. So he he talks about trying to keep one foot in today and one foot in tomorrow. You know, the the automotive and transportation industries are going through these really you know, huge changes as as driverless cars approach in the next few years and robot taxis. So. Mark Fields is investing billions in those new technologies that won't pay off for many, many years. And he really gets no investor credit for doing that, though he says if he doesn't, you know, the company won't survive the changes that are coming. At the same time, though, he's not making as much money on the good old fashioned, you know, uh, business of selling cars and trucks. uh, Ford's um, you know, adjusted earnings fell 42% in the first quarter while GM was notching record earnings. GM's making more money off SUVs than Ford. Ford's lineup is uh, is aging a bit. They don't have, um, at the moment, competitive big SUVs. They're coming with a redesigned Lincoln Navigator next year. They also aren't present in some key segments like small pickups and Um, subcompact SUVs, which they are rectifying that as well. But it's going to take some time. And meanwhile, uh, GM is stealing the march.
2: So can you just put this uh, shareholder meeting into perspective? I know you've covered others and you've been covering the auto industry for a long time. I mean, have you ever heard such vitriol at a meeting during a generally positive time for a company?
5: Well, that's the key uh, during a, a positive time for the company. This company last year had pre-tax earnings of $10.4 billion, which was the second best in company history. So no, this this kind of uh, ire from shareholders is unusual given you know how the company is actually performing. But then again, the stock price is pretty unusual for how the company is performing as well. The stock is acting as if the company is going out of business when in fact they're doing pretty well given for that the auto market after seven years of growth is starting to slow down. Uh,
2: I, I want to get your take on the departure of Chantel Leonard. She was the executive director of U.S. Marketing. She had been at the company for 25 years, and uh, was it yesterday or certainly mm-hmm. this week? Uh, the company announced that she will be leaving to, to pursue other interests without any more explanation. Um, do you have a better sense of why she left and what this means?
5: Yeah, it's very unusual. She was she was uh, sort of public face of Ford marketing in the U. S. She was uh, always appearing on TV or doing interviews about what the marketing plans were. A week ago, she was in a video on the Advertising Age website talking about Ford's strategy for self-driving cars, and then suddenly. She up and leaves. I think it's a reflection of of how tough things are right now for Ford in its home market as it loses market share, as its sales decline on a retail basis, sales directly to consumers. Uh, Chrysler actually outsold Ford last month, which is highly unusual. So, you know, it's a time of tumult um, in Ford's North American operations, and they just lost – a pretty valuable veteran who Automotive News Magazine identified as a rising star just two years ago.
2: Well, I'm sure uh, we will be talking more as this unfolds about what Ford does plan to do going forward in order to uh, re- placate its shareholders. Keith Naughton, thank you so much for joining us. Keith Naughton is uh, editor-at-large for the auto industry for Bloomberg News, coming to us from Detroit